Hi, my name is Christian. Uh, our scripture reading for today will be Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry on out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of, his, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, in, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, may you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. May we see in Christ everything, all that we need and more. May we see the great mystery revealed, Christ in us, the hope of glory. May we see the world rightly because we see it through him. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. For many people, to meet a Christian ought to feel like meeting something of an oddball. There's something odd about that person. There's something off. There's something different. One person might say there's something backwards. Another person might feel that there is something altogether upside down. There is something upside down about the way a Christian sees the world. As Christians, we don't need to balk at those labels. We actually need to embrace and own it. Yes, there is something upside down about us. We do see the world and our life in it very differently. The way we see things does go against the default settings and the natural way of seeing the world that most everyone else has. We can own that we see things upside down from our unbelieving neighbor, but the real question between us and our unbelieving neighbor is this. Which of us is actually standing on our heads? Who is really right side up? And who is actually seeing the world upside down? To the man standing on his head and the man standing upright on his feet, both look upside down to one another, don't they? Both appear like an oddball from the perspective of the other. If both appear upside down to each other, how do we determine who is seeing the world right side up and who is seeing it upside down? We'll make a great start at solving that problem just by examining two things. Of the two men, which one's feet is planted firmly on the ground and which one's feet is kicking freely in the air? Of the two, when looking up, who perceives an infinite expanse above his head and who, when looking up, sees only dirt and muck and the grave? In other words, which one's perspective best maps onto the rest of reality. 
Which one's perspective is a better picture of reality, a better understanding of reality with stronger foundations to stand on and a more expansive sky to gaze up into? I bet you already know which perspective I'm going to argue for. (laughs) I bet you have a good guess of which perspective I think actually sees the world right side up. It's the perspective that God himself came to show us. This is a unique element to the Christian story. The Christian story says that God himself came into the world, a world in which everyone else had been born upside down. Into this world, Jesus comes as the only man born right side up. And because he looked funny and upside down to us, we laughed and mocked him. We scorned and hated him. But with great love and great self-sacrifice, this Jesus starts the process of turning people over. He stands people on their feet for the very first time, changing their perspective forever. A man named Saul, who is one of the great persecutors of this new perspective, this Saul thought the Jesus movement was as upside down as it gets. To Saul of Tarsus, the perspective of Jesus' followers is so upside down and so dangerous that they, like Jesus, deserve death. Or at least to be locked up until they can learn not to turn people over anymore. On his way to Damascus to do this very thing, this Saul has an encounter with the risen Jesus. Picture Saul, if you will, as a man standing on his head, walking on his hands to Damascus. And all of a sudden, in a blinding light, Jesus appears and bam, he turns this man over, right side up, for the very first time. I hear that if you're, you're prone to dizziness and vertigo, one of the ways they treat you is by hanging you upside down and then rapidly putting you back up again to reset things. Paul is a man whose world has just been turned on its head. His perspective has just been reset. Jesus flips this upside down man right side up. And Saul of Tarsus is so changed by the experience that he can't go by his old name anymore. Saul of Tarsus is now Paul, the apostle. And I don't think Paul would have given anyone grief for dead naming him as Saul. He probably wouldn't have had any hurt feelings over it. Uh, It would have just been an opportunity to tell his story. I am no longer going by the name of Saul because I am a new man. I'm Paul now. I have a new name because, you see, I see the world so differently now, I have taken on a new identity. New identity equals new name. There are people today desperately looking for an identity-defining experience significant enough that it can change their name. But sadly, they go looking for it in upside-down ways, with feet flailing in the air and heads sinking into the sand. 
If you look for identity, when you are already upside down, your feet will not find a firm place to stand on. The mud of the world will be all there is to see when you look up. Because you think you're looking up, but you're actually looking down. And disillusioned, dissatisfaction, despair are all the natural byproducts and the telltale signs that you are seeing life upside down. But Paul says to us today in the book of Colossians, there is another way. There is another perspective. There is a firm place for your feet to stand. There is a right way up perspective on life, a right way up perspective that can change the way you see everything. And here, in verse 24, is the first great test. The first great test to tell whether we've been flipped right way up is this. Ask yourself, has Jesus really flipped my perspective on my suffering? Suffering. Has Christ flipped me over in a way I see the afflictions that come my way differently, completely differently. Let's see how Jesus has flipped Paul's perspective. Look at verse 24 again. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. How incredibly odd is this? This is such a strange statement to most people. This is such an upside-down way of seeing life. I rejoice in my suffering. These two words ought not to go together. Rejoice and suffering. I rejoice in my suffering. This is not humanity's default perspective on suffering, is it? This is not our natural way of seeing it. This is not the way we're naturally wired It's much more natural to say, now I'm sad in my suffering. Now I groan in my suffering. Now I'm angry in my suffering. Now I pity myself in my suffering. I'm I'm depressed in my suffering. Paul's view of suffering is utterly upside down from the rest of the world. So, we have to ask the question, Who is standing right side up? Who is seeing suffering rightly? Paul or the rest of the world? To the rest of the world, Paul looks like a man who's standing on his head, who's standing upside down. But then, that's how Jesus looked as well. Jesus is the one who flipped Paul over. Could they, could Jesus, could Paul be right and everyone else be wrong? What is Paul seeing about suffering that the world is missing? That I'm missing? That you're perhaps missing? We don't have to guess about what Paul sees because the rest of the verse tells us. The thing that transforms Paul's perspective here is that Paul sees his suffering directly connected to Jesus. When it comes to suffering, Paul's feet stand upon the firm foundation of a Savior, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Look again at verse 24, and let's see that connection. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, there's obviously a connection being made here with Christ, a connection between Jesus' afflictions and Paul's. You may not understand the nature of that connection yet, but you can see that connection's there, right? You can see that connection makes all the difference for Paul. Now, follow me on a little journey, because I hope at the end you and I arrive at the same place as Paul, seeing how all of our suffering connects to our Savior. If you can see it and believe it this morning, you just might be able to do the impossible. Rejoice in your suffering like Paul rejoices in his. We'll go on a little journey together, but let's begin by quickly, I'll give you the heading that summarizes the journey in verse 24. We see this. We see suffering as a representing of Christ. A re, not representing, but a representing of Christ. To understand this connection that Paul makes, we need to ask the following question from verse 24. In what sense does Paul's afflictions fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? In what sense does Paul's suffering fill up what is lacking in Jesus' suffering? You see that there, verse 24? We already know from Paul's other letters one answer that cannot be true. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions cannot be their atoning value, right? Paul says in every letter that there is no other atoning sacrifice outside the cross. There is no atonement outside of Christ's suffering. His atonement is so sufficient, there's no need for any other. There's nothing deficient in the atoning value of the cross that Paul's suffering or our suffering could make up for. So what is lacking? It's not the atoning value. What is lacking? There is only one thing. And we get a clue as to what that is when we examine another place where Paul uses this same phrase. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about Epaphroditus. And he tells the Philippians, Receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fill up what was lacking in your service to me. The exact same phrase, same concept. Fill up what was lacking. What was lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul? It's not that their love offering for Paul wasn't already taken up. It wasn't that the books and parchments he needed weren't already collected and there in the, in the saddlebags. What was lacking and the task that Epaphroditus had to complete was the physical presentation of those gifts to Paul while he was there being held in prison. The supplies weren't lacking. They were sufficient. What was lacking was their presentation, presenting the gifts to the person who needed them. In this way, Epaphroditus completes what was lacking in the Philippian service to Paul. 
by physically making the journey and presenting their gift. I think the same idea is here in Colossians 1, verse 24. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions isn't their atoning value, but the physical presentation of those sufferings to the people for whom he died. Compared to all the people who were alive at the time, very, very few saw Jesus crucified. Very few people for whom Jesus died actually saw it happen. Very few, comparatively, actually saw his suffering. But as Paul travels from city to city around the Roman world, and he is falsely accused and imprisoned and beaten and betrayed, people are seeing in Paul's sufferings a re-presenting of Christ's suffering. For Paul, every ounce of his suffering points people to his Savior. Paul says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Better than any tattoo of Jesus, these scars on my back tell people just how valuable he is to me, just how much he is worth. My pain proclaims his. My suffering for him shows people the reality of his suffering for me. Believing that enables Paul to say, now I rejoice in my suffering because I see them connected to Christ. I am representing Jesus' suffering to others as I suffer well with joy. Now, this is perspective changing, isn't it? This change it changes the way you, it should change the way you see suffering, giving you what feels like a right way up perspective on life. G.K. Chesterton once said that Christianity satisfies suddenly and perfectly man's ancestral instinct for being the right way up. Satis- satisfies it supremely in this, that by its creed, joy becomes something gigantic and sadness something special. And small. You know you found your feet when joy becomes something gigantic. It is so big that it is even there in your suffering. Only the firmest ground beneath your feet can enable you to rejoice in your pain. Joy can actually be there because of the pain. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. Now, let me ask the question you might be asking yourself. What suffering counts? What suffering counts as a representing of Christ? What suffering can we rejoice in as being connected to Jesus? Well, we we know one kind that isn't. Peter says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this, is to rejoice 
in this. Jesus said this, didn't he? Blessed are you when people persecute you, say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. What are you to do? Rejoice and be glad, right? Rejoice and be glad. They treated the prophets in the same way, and your reward in heaven is great. If you suffer as a consequence of doing wrong, that suffering doesn't count. There's no joy in that. If you suffer because you're a jerk at work, it doesn't count as suffering for Jesus. But I think any suffering that we move through with faith and hope and trust in Jesus counts as suffering connected to Jesus. Any suffering, be it bullying, verbal or violent, be it intentional slights or relational breakdown or intense internal conflicts and struggles, any suffering you move through with faith and joy in Jesus is a representing of his suffering. Any suffering, be it chronic back pain or diabetes or Bell's palsy or cancer, when your doctors and nurses and neighbors and family observe a joy and a hope in you that defies all worldly explanation, you give them a heavenly one. You point them to a Savior whose suffering redeems your suffering. You can say with Paul, my outer man is wasting away, but in Jesus, my inner man, my soul is being renewed day by day. Yes, there is sorrow that comes with suffering. Jesus experienced sorrow in suffering. But we can say with Paul, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As others see in our suffering a hope and peace and joy that requires an explanation, let's give it to them. It's because we are seeing the world right side up right way up for the first time. Our Savior changes our perspective. Jesus has changed our perspective on our suffering, on our cancer, on our misfortune. He has stood us up on our feet, and we would not go back to seeing the world upside down for anything. Now, I've spent a lot of time on this first point because I know there are those here who are suffering at present. And if it's not you now, it all too soon will be. Because suffering is coming for us all. You need to find a faith today that can turn you right way up and enable you to say with Paul this crazy statement. Now I rejoice in my suffering. Here's the next heading and the next test of our perspective. It involves stewardship. Stewardship, a life benefiting others. A life benefiting others. Look at verse 25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. We naturally assume 
that the things we have are primarily for us, for our own benefit. But is that the right way or the upside-down way of seeing the world? What if God gave you everything you have, not as an entitlement, but as a stewardship? Your gifts aren't for your own advancement, but for the benefit of others. You've been given dominion over your little sphere, but it's not to eke out what's best for you. Rather, it's to work for the good of all that's under your charge. These are two very different ways of seeing the world. One comes very natural. The me first, looking out for number one, survival of the fittest way to see the world. That view comes naturally, but there's another view that comes supernaturally. It's not according to nature. It's a view that is above nature, that transcends nature. This is a view of stewardship. We are not owners. We are stewards of what God owns. We are stewards of God's world and God's resources. And Jesus said that we are stewards who will have to give an account. Were we selfish? Were we selfish squanderers who spent what we had on ourselves, tearing down our barns to build bigger barns? Or were we good stewards who improved and did good with what we had for the benefit of others, for the benefit of those around us? Jesus called one way, the natural way of living, foolish, and the other, the supernatural way of life, wise. He said, living as a wise steward is the way to be rich toward God. Really rich? You want to be really rich? It only comes in being rich toward God. Here, too, we find that the upside-down, supernatural perspective of Jesus actually makes more sense of the world. It is a better way to live in the world. It's like we finally found our feet We're not meant to walk on our hands as selfishly grasping owners. We're meant to walk on our feet as selfless, grateful stewards. We're meant to spend our lives, like Jesus, for the benefit of others. That's the second perspective-changing truth. Here's a third, and it's a mystery. The mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We see this in verses 26 and 27. The mystery, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, God's people, the church. Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Christians, we live with an element of mystery. But I contend that the atheist lives with a lot more troubling mysteries than we do. Here's a mystery for your atheist friend. Why is there something instead of nothing? 
with trillions of galaxies in the universe? Why is there so much something instead of nothing? Why is the universe comprehensible on any level to us? Einstein called this a miracle that I, a consciousness with a conscience, can correctly comprehend the universe around me. Natural selection can't explain that miracle, but the image of God in mankind can. And then there are other mysteries like these. What about my sense of justice? Where does that come from? Why do I have a sense of right and wrong? And why does my sense of what's right and just often go against what's best for me and my survival? If it's all evolutionary conditioning, if it's all advancing the survival of the fittest, my sense of what's right is most likely to be the thing that puts me in harm's way. That's why I go into a fight instead of it being something that aids me in my safety and keeping me from harm. Christians may have the problem of evil, but the atheist has the problem of evil and good, of justice and injustice, of morality and equality. You can say these things are so self-evident that you don't have to have any basis for them, but that's like saying you're content to stand on an invisible foundation. An invisible foundation might just be air. You might just be standing on your head with your legs churning in the sky. You don't have a foundation for the morality and the equality you believe in. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. What about other mysteries like this? Why do I feel a sense of transcendence when I hear a particular piece of music? There's no evolutionary reason for that. Why do certain works of art move me like they do? Why are humans capable of art at all? People imagine that we know a lot about cavemen, but the one thing that we actually know about the caveman is that he was an artist. That's all we know, really. That's all the observable evidence that's left. Paintings on cave walls. We had this capacity in us from the start. There are mysteries in our nature, but those mysteries are way more confounding for the atheist than they are for the Christian. And I haven't even mentioned yet mysteries involving purpose and identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What purpose does my life serve? Is there any purpose at all? Christianity has its areas of mystery, but these are not it. These mysteries have been revealed. All these mysteries involving identity and purpose are all wrapped up and revealed in a greater mystery. Verse 26, the mystery that's been hidden from ages past, but now has been manifested to his saints. The mystery of our purpose and identity is wrapped up in this greater mystery, one that revolves around God's purpose for the world how he purposed to redeem a rebellious creation back to himself by giving us a new identity in Christ. The gospel of Jesus is the good news of mankind's redemption. 
that no one saw coming. It was a mystery. No one understood how it all unfolds. But it's now been revealed. This mystery answers our questions about ultimate purpose and identity. This mystery says that we were made to be united to Christ. To be united to God. We were made to be caught up in his glory. This is the mystery revealed. It is Christ in me, the hope of glory. A bit of the divine, and there's mystery here, a bit of the divine has come to live in me. My identity is changed from a creature in rebellion to a child adopted into God's family. There's a mystery here still, but they're the kind of mysteries that make you stand back in awe and wonder, like looking up at a starry night sky. Uh, It's Lucas. Lucas Johnson, our resident astrophysicist, brought some high-powered telescopes to the Hobbit Day party we were having at our house this week. And I saw heavenly bodies like I have never seen before, y'all. I saw the rings of Saturn (laughs) through a telescope. The heavens really are declaring the glory of God. That's the view for the Christian looking up. But for the atheist, at least for the brutally honest atheist, when he looks up, it's different. It's nihilism. It's all meaningless. The heavens don't declare anything. There is no glory. There's not even a hope of glory. That's what the honest atheist says when he looks up. But in response, I say, as a Christian, it's because you're standing on your head. Here, let me flip you over. Better yet, listen to Jesus. Let him flip you over and change the way you see life. Then you'll discover there is meaning. And our smallest acts and interactions have greater consequences than you can imagine. And that brings us to our final point, which is this, the goal. The goal, presenting everyone complete in Christ. Presenting everyone complete in Christ. We see this in verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, we proclaim him, Jesus, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete mature in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul says this is his work. This is his labor. He is working to present everyone complete and mature in Christ. With his words and teaching and wisdom and training and actions, Paul is doing this work. It's like a sculptor who has a block of marble. And with his tools, he is chiseling away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. It's like a coach training an athlete. The coach is instructing and drilling and creating new muscle memories and reflexes in order for the athlete to compete well and win the prize. It's like a parent raising a child. The parent is teaching and training and disciplining in order for the child to be a responsible, considerate, kind adult one day. 
Parents are discipling their children, shaping their character, instilling values, hoping to present someone who will not feature someday on America's Most Wanted. Just kidding. We, we, have, we have a bit higher aspirations than that, don't we? We hope to raise up children who see the world right way up, who can rejoice in their suffering and put their hope in God, who can be radically generous and who can risk it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul is like a parent. Paul is like a coach. He's like a sculptor who is working to present a finished product to God. It's his work, but Paul knows it is not his strength doing it. Verse 29, I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. It's Paul's work, but God's power that is the driving force to do the work. 1 Peter 4 says this, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving with all the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The strength to do the work ultimately comes from God, so that the glory for the work ultimately goes to God. Paul calls it his labor, it's his work, even though the power to shape stone and mature lives comes from above, even though ultimately it's God's work. Paul is a dependent worker. He's a steward. He is dependent upon God for any progress in this work, and we are as well. I said this is Paul's work, but this is your work too. This is the work of every parent, presenting your family complete in Christ. This is the goal even if you never become a parent. The Apostle Paul didn't father any children, but he was a father to many, a spiritual father who invested in and discipled other believers to be mature in Christ. This is your job. This is your goal too. Presenting to God the people around you complete in Christ. We can only do this work with God's power. And we do this work best when we do it together as a church family. Not as isolated individuals, but as part of the, the family God designed to grow us. Paul, after all, is writing these words to a local church. The church is the context Jesus designed for our growth and for being made complete in Christ. In the context of Christ's church, we find eternally meaningful work. This eternally meaningful work. We labor to present the people around us here complete in Christ. That work is not just for the pastor. That work is something you have a part in as well. This is your purpose and identity too. You are primarily not a student. You are primarily not an employee of a company. You are primarily not a homemaker for your family. You are primarily a disciple maker for Jesus. 
That's a work of eternal value. That's a job that has a retirement plan that is out of this world. One that pays dividends forever. This work makes us stand out from the rest of the world. Whose work can tragically be so all-consuming while also so temporary and fleeting. Work that doesn't last beyond a lifetime is what most people are pursuing. So when the unbeliever looks at us, he sees something different. When the unbeliever looks up, he sees the nearness of the grave. He sees nothing beyond the dust he will soon return to. But when the Christian looks up, we see an infinite heaven of glory stretching out into eternity, an eternity that can be impacted by our lives today, lives that have a different goal, that embrace a different mystery, that live differently as stewards to benefit others, and that amazingly even manage to find joy in suffering. For many people, to meet such a person is to meet an oddball. Someone who is utterly upside down. But to them, it's our privilege to say, here, take my hand. Let's look and see who really is seeing life upside down. Father, I ask that you would turn all of us on our heads. May we see the world and see life as you see it, as Jesus sees it. This is an upside-down perspective. We, we live in an upside-down kingdom to the rest of the world. But may we find that as we, as we see the world as Jesus sees it, we stand upon a firm foundation like no other. We look up into a sky full of glory and endless delight. May we find all these things to be true in Christ. May we find in him our everything. And may you make us those who delight to pour that truth and make disciples of others. Uh, Lord, may those who encounter us encounter something more than just someone who is odd, encounter someone who has seen a Savior and who has been changed by him. Uh, Lord, may you change us now. Uh, perhaps for the first time today. And may you send us out from here to be those who turn others right way up because we have met the Savior who has done that for us. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.